You may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. We're working through the book of James together. There's the verses that we'll be covering today printed in the insert in your bulletin and a short outline for you to follow along. The theme of the book of James is looking for genuine faith, faith that is real. He would warn that even the demons believe and shudder, but they don't have genuine faith that saves. He's walking us through the new birth and the new life that proceeds from it. He established in chapter 1, verse 18, that it is God, He is the one that brought us forth, who has borne us again out of His own will. His sovereign choice, He has birthed us, given us new life by His grace. It's, it's nothing that we have done. All the ways in which we demonstrate the faith that God has gifted us with don't contribute to the grounds for our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that salvation is going to work its, out, work its way out. It's going to grow. And so, like new birth in the physical world, our, our children, as they come into this life, they grow. They grow in life, and they mature. And so, we as Christians ought to, as we are born again by the Holy Spirit of God, grow in our spiritual lives. So, there were a few tests that James holds up against our lives to see, is the fruit of our faith, is the, this faith genuine? And the first was when we hear the Word but we don't do it. That demonstrates that that faith is not truly genuine. And then in chapter 1, verse 26, there was the test of the tongue. If we don't bridle our tongue, then, then we don't pass that test. Then the, there was the test of those who were in need. Pure and undefiled religion is this, that you visit widows and orphans in their affliction. If you have no care for the widows and orphans, if you don't, if you don't show your faith by your care for them, is your faith even real? And then there's the test of the world, that we're to keep ourselves unstained from the world, but so often we remain stained because that, that faith is not living and active in our lives. Today, we're going to be examined by the test of genuine faith, the test of showing partiality. Follow along as I read James 2, 1 through 7. This is God's inspired and inerrant and sufficient Word. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He's promised to those who love Him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. We thank You for the 
truth that is set before us. And as our Savior prayed that we would be sanctified by Your truth, Lord, I pray that that would be a present reality in our lives even now. Lord, we know that Your Word is powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. And we pray that You would, by Your Spirit, make application of its truth to our lives so that we wouldn't just be hearers this morning, but that we would be doers. Empowered by Your Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead at work in us to live lives that bring glory to Your Son. We pray that You would assist us in this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Twenty-one years ago, I hadn't even made it down my road for the one-mile trip to my office in New York when I heard on the radio that a plane had hit the World Trade Center. And I turned right around on my street, went back home, and I turned on the TV and I started watching the horrific events of that day. My wife sitting there, and it just, it just makes an impression on you. Don't, don't you remember where you were exactly when you heard the news? And if you're young enough to not remember, you can probably tell from the looks on our faces that this was a significant event in world history. Nearly 3,000 people lost their lives that day. So many acts of heroism, and terrorism has a way just to not let you forget. There was uh, an army officer in our congregation that gave us uh, a challenge coin that I still have today that says September 11, 2001, we will never forget. Let's roll. And on the other side it says Operation Enduring Freedom from the 519th Military Intelligence Battalion. This is... Uh, so that those who were a part of those operations can remember, challenge others who were there as well, don't forget, don't ever forget. We were changed. I think we were changed in so many ways. One of the ways that we were changed, I think, for the bad was the way in which our thoughts and our minds got shifted towards skepticism, fear, about anybody that was different from us. Yes, the terrorists came from the Middle East. They were part of Al-Qaeda. And yet, we soon, in our thinking, myself included, started to paint with a broad brush everybody who was of Middle Eastern descent as being the enemy, as being somebody you have to be watching out for and skeptical of. You remember flying on a plane, your first flight afterwards, and looking around at the people that you were seated near and wondering, could this happen again? Could this happen to us? And there's such inner turmoil that comes with being wise, discerning, and making righteous judgments versus being foolish and given over to fear and making discriminatory, prejudicial, partial judgments, judging only by the outside and not by the character of a person. The world has got it all convoluted. The world has uh, seized the problem, but it, it doesn't give the, the, the clear answers that the Scriptures give for us. And the Bible gives us wonderful guardrails to help us to keep on track when it comes to how we treat others that are different from us, how we are to think of them. You know, 
The world says, Amnesty International says, we all have the right to be treated equally regardless of race, ethnicity, nationality, class, caste, religion, belief, sex, gender, language, sexual orientation, gender identity. There's a confusion. There's a confusion between what are those behaviors that are chosen that God's Word says are sinful and then those characteristics that you're born with and you own because that's the way God made you. And here, the Bible has to be our guide in order for us to understand and make distinctions. Here in this passage, James, I think, is really narrowing in on the, the partiality of classism, the seeing someone who's rich, seeing so, somebody who's influential and giving them different treatment than you see somebody who is poor and shabbily dressed. How do we discriminate between those different groups? I want us to walk through this passage of Scripture and see what we can learn about how partiality has no place within the church. Very first verse, verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Well, this is just in a series of those tests that he's been giving along the test of our tongue, the test of worldliness, the test of how you care for those in need. And here's the test. You can't hold on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time show partiality to give special treatment, to show favoritism. They are incompatible. They don't fit. Now, I could just walk off and sit down and just say, there's a sermon for you. Don't show partiality. James thankfully fleshes this out with some rationale behind it and then some illustration of it. And it starts with how he introduces his exhortation, my brothers. You know, the world is going to have a different way of looking at things. We shouldn't expect the world is going to see things the way that we see things. They don't have the revelation of what God says is true makes sense to them. And so when we're told, my brothers, this is for us as Christians. This is our standard. We, as brothers and sisters in Christ, should hold each other to this standard. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus. Holding on to the faith. You know, when we hold on to something, it's a present active reality. It's not something that we, we did or said at one time and then doesn't really matter right now. Faith in Christ is about that time when you're convicted of your sin and you repent of it and you place your trust in Christ, but holding on to that faith is the rest of your Christian life. As you grow in Christ, if you're going to hold on to Christ, you can't hold on to partiality at, at the same time. You're going to have to give that up. Just like so many other sins, sinful habits within our, within our life, we need, as we grow up in Christ, hold to Christ, let go of those things that don't belong. It's interesting to me that James, the brother of Jesus, says that we shouldn't hold partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord is our ruler, our master, the one who is over us. James's brother is our, referring to his brother as the, as the Lord, 
but he goes beyond that by using this title for Jesus. He, did, he didn't have to, right? He could have just ended, my brothers show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But he uses this particular title, and I think it's for, it's for an important reason, the Lord of glory. Uh, Paul uses it again in 1 Corinthians. I think he talks about if you had known, you would not have sacrificed, you would not have killed the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory could refer to Jesus as the personification of the Shekinah of the Old Testament, the, the glory of God as it was revealed to the people of Israel as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar, or a filler, pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. This is the glory of God revealed. Jesus is that glorious. He is the Lord of glory. But I think it could also help us to put in proper perspective, if you're holding in the faith of, uh, in this Lord Jesus Christ, He is the Lord who is the glorious one. Why are you making distinctions about how, what this person's wearing? Why are you making distinctions about what, how much you think this person makes? In Philippians 2, it says that Jesus that we're to have this mind that Jesus had, that though He was in the form of God, considered equality with God something that He didn't hold on to, but He willingly emptied Himself and He humbled Himself unto the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, the Lord of glory, is being worshipped and adored by myriads of angels, tens of thousands of angels all the time singing His glory, and here He is willing to humble Himself and to come down and to make himself nothing. Why would you, as a brother in Christ, holding to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, ignore his glory and focus in on the glory of some human being? The, the, the best they have, they got money, they got influence, they got something that, that, that could help you, really? Doesn't Jesus have all that and more? it makes the argument for showing partiality kind of ridiculous. Why would you do that? So I kind of just played my hand there. I think James played his hand right off the bat. This is ridiculous that you would show partiality in light of the Lord of glory. But then he gives us the example. He found, he grounds it, in fact, in a similar way as he did in the test of those who are in need. He says, the character of God himself shows that he cares for the widow and the orphan. If you remember, I quoted Deuteronomy 10, 17 and following as a proof that the God of the Old Testament, New Testament, this God is a God who cares for the orphans and widows. He executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And so, if that's God's character, we ought to emulate the character of our Father. We should look like our dad in heaven and care for the fatherless and the widow. The very verse before that in Deuteronomy 10, verse 17 says, For the Lord your God is God, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and doesn't take a bribe. God's not partial. God's not a respecter of persons. God doesn't show favoritism. God doesn't give or hold back based on 
the external look. Samuel was tested in his faith in the same regard as far as whether he's going to pick according to his view, his understanding, or whether he was going to follow God's choice. It came to a head in choosing Israel's next king after Saul. How did they choose Saul? He's head and shoulders above everybody else. Let's make him king. As a short person, okay, a shorter person, I can really understand the error in that because short people can't, or tall people can't be trusted. Look at Goliath, look at tall. So I won't even go there. Is that partiality? Wait a second. Um, here Samuel has the command. You choose the one, you anoint the one that I choose. And so in 1 Samuel 16, when they came, he sees the family of Jesse, his sons. When they came, he looked at Eliab and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He's the biggest, he's the oldest, he's the strongest. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his appearance, of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Jesse calls Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of them. Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? He said, well, we got one more. He's out in the field watching the sheep. He brought him in. He was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. When Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. When we choose as God chooses, instead of the way we see, we can only see the appearances. We only see the external. We're going to fail. So here's a little test. If you knew that in 10 minutes you were going to be meeting with King Charles III, would you brush your teeth? Would you wash up? Would you think about what you're going to say? If you were sure that in the next 10 minutes you were going to meet a homeless person down the road, would you brush your teeth? Would you prepare what you're going to say? Would you get ready for that? You know, the way that we think about other people just by their appearance, just by their status, it really shows a lot about our hearts. What is partiality? What does it mean to show partiality? Look at verse 2. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So these distinctions, these evil thoughts are shaping the decisions that you made, the preference that you give on one hand and the rejection and the lowering that you do on the other hand. The word in verse 1 showing partiality is actually a compound word in the Greek. It means to literally receive the face. It's judging a book by its cover. The, the, the face of somebody. So you look at the face and you say whether you decide whether you're going to receive. It's the idea of looking to see someone who, who someone is before deciding how to treat him. The idea is judging by appearance 
and on that basis, giving or not giving special favor and respect. It pertains to judging purely on a superficial level without consideration of a person's true merits, abilities, and character. The illustration that James uses really calls to mind one that Jesus used in Matthew 23. Jesus said to the crowd of disciples, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move, move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. Exactly what James is saying. I got this special seat for you. You're a special person. Obviously, look at the way you're dressed. You belong in the choice seats. This is exactly how the Pharisees functioned. The scribes and Pharisees wanted to do everything for show. They wanted to be honored. They wanted to be seen as religious. It was throughout the culture of the early church. It really, in the Roman, Greco-Roman world, once you were labeled a certain status in society, you were stuck there. You were there for your life. Throughout our cultures and times, we've come up with language that describes this partiality. Uh, discrimination is defined as the unjust or prejudicial treatment of different categories of people or things, especially on the grounds of class, race, age, or sex. Prejudice is a, is a preconceived opinion that's not based on reason or actual experience. And there's a difference between prejudice and discri- discrimination. Sometimes prejudice is confused. While prejudice involves negative attitudes towards members of a certain group, discrimination occurs when these feelings are acted upon. So you might think, well, I'm not doing anything to act upon those feelings, but I got this hunch, I got this idea, I got this feeling, I think this way about this person only based on those externals. That's prejudice, and it's the heart attitude that springs forth into the discriminatory behavior. Now, again, our culture, the world system has put its own spin on this very problem in its push for diversity, equity, inclusion. They want social justice, critical theory works its way in, and then you have phobias, and then you have these ways of uh, characterizing the mistreatment of people based on externals with the mistreatment or the, the categorization of some activities as simply sinful and God's against. And so it takes such great wisdom for us to navigate and to work through how do we how do we deal with the way that the world speaks about things versus the way that God's Word speaks about things? Again, the example that we have here is definitely treating somebody differently because they have money or they are associated with an influential class. You know, as a, as a practical matter, in our church, the elders, the deacons, none of the leaders of our church know how much anybody in the church gives. The bookkeepers the secretaries who aren't even members of our church are the only ones who know you by a number and an address, and they send the IRS statements to, to all of us based on that. Because the temptation 
to treat somebody different based on what you know that they make, what they give, is such a, such a distraction. It's, it's such a pull that we just don't want to have anything to do with that. We safeguard ourselves so we don't know those things. You know, how we view Christ and how we view others is really manifested. Look at verse 5. It says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He's promised to those who love Him? So as He describes the poor, it's not that being poor makes you rich in faith. No, God chose, God chooses, God decides, and some of those who are poor, He does give the gift of faith and makes them rich in faith. Verse 6, but you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? It seems during this particular time in history, there were rich unbelievers that were dragging these Christians into court in order to maybe take their land from them, to, to seize their property, but also if they had a debt that they owed to this rich person, that they would be able to put them in debtor's prison until they paid their debt. And so this is what was going on in the courts, and then you come into church and you're treating these rich people who are mistreating you in a special way? It doesn't make any sense. How did Jesus treat those He came in contact with? What I love about the example of Jesus is that He didn't give favor one way or the other. The Lord Jesus, as one commentary says, was as polite to the woman at the well as He was to Nicodemus. He was as gracious to the woman that touched the hem of His garment as He was to Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. He was as open to poor, blind Bartimaeus as he was to the rich, young ruler. He had no respect of persons. He was as honest and forthright with the Syrophoenician woman as he was with Pilate. He treated everyone with the same love, the same interest, the same care, the same concern. He wasn't condescending when he was dealing with the publicans and sinners, and he wasn't cowed or compromising when he dealt with those who occupied seats of power. He gave the outcast and the untouchables the same gentle, loving compassion that he extended to the scribes and to the Pharisees. Sometimes the Lord did not approve of the people's behavior, but he looked beyond that to the individuals and their deepest needs and treated them with dignity no matter what. That's so important for us to understand. That grounds us in the way that we react to people. I remember back to college years when at Moody Bible Institute, each of us were given an assignment called a PCM, a Practical Christian Ministry, where we would do something within the community to train us for future ministry, whether that was working at the homeless shelter, whether that was working in Cabrini Green, the, the urban uh, housing development there. Uh, there were so many ways in which uh, places of need that, that Moody students were assigned to serve. Tony and I worked with uh, an African-American uh, young man who uh, challenged my thinking on this subject. He wanted to say it was good that we would send, you know, these white suburban middle-class kids into Cabrini-Green to help and nurture and evangelize and disciple 
young, underprivileged kids. But he said, I want a PCM where I go down to the Gold Coast, and I want to go up into the high-rises, and I want to knock on doors, and I want to tell them about Jesus. What's interesting is we think maybe subtly, maybe unconsciously, that the poor, destitute people would benefit more from knowing Jesus than those rich, isolated people who are left to themselves. They don't have the same kinds of problems, but their greatest problem is still present. They, they need Christ. I took a walk around the cemetery here, and it was interesting for me to just kind of clear my head and to look at the different gravestones. You can tell something about people's life by what you read on their gravestones. You'll see a Bible verse, or you might see a, a chief's helmet, or you might see a royal's logo, or you might see just various occupations and things that people did. Some of the, the surface level things about them. And yet, a stark reality hit me this morning that is, as much as you could see the diversity of headstones, probably some that were spent tens of thousands of dollars on and maybe some that were maybe only hundreds of dollars, once they're six foot in the grave, there's no distinctions among them. The rich didn't get buried over here. The poor didn't get buried over here. The special influential over here and the not so... If you to clear off all the gravestones and just look at this field and see what you see below the surface, there are bodies just waiting for the resurrection of the dead. And there's really only two types of people in that cemetery. Those who are resting in what Christ Jesus has done for them, His finished work on the cross, paying for them, their sins and making them at peace with God, and those who haven't trusted Christ, who rejected Him and went to their graves without Him. The great leveler of all things is death. You can't take what you have with you. You won't be judged in the afterlife by how much you made or how much you didn't make. It's going to be with this eternal reality in view. And maybe we, we could shape the way that we look at other people uh, like Jesus looked at people, these are human beings created in the image of God that have eternal souls that will last forever. The way that you treat those eternal beings should reflect your deep need for the gospel, your deep need for your sins to be forgiven, and your longing for them to be right with God. No matter where, what background they're from, no matter what race they're from, no matter how many tattoos they have or how they wear their hair or what they put in their ears, their nose, or their belly button, you should see them as people created in God's image that will live forever, either with Christ or apart from Him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank You that You have made us one in Christ Jesus that you've broken down the wall of separation, the, the wall of hostility, and that you have made us and put us into one body in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, but that we are all one in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you have made us your children, your sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that we would be welcoming that we would be winsome and caring towards people that are different from us, 
people that, on the whole, simply need you. Lord, I pray that we would show no partiality, but that we'd hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response is...